This morning's scripture is the entire chapter of uh, seven of Proverbs. And so thank you for standing. <laughs> my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live, keeping my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are might, a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us. Uh, as uh, Mike just read, we will be in uh, Proverbs chapter 7 this morning. Just as a reminder, uh, we have been in Proverbs for the past couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be in Proverbs through the end of the year, and then we're going to start uh, the book of Romans. But we thought uh, it would be fun to kind of take a break. We, we just finished the book of Ephesians before we turn our attention to another uh, New Testament Pauline epistle to kind of uh, go back into the Old Testament and to see uh, some of the, the, the rich roots uh, of our faith there, and then also to, to, to have an opportunity for us to engage in this same method of expository preaching, but in a different genre, a different context. And so that's what we're doing over, uh, over the next couple of months, and so glad that you're with us uh, this morning. When I was in uh, college, I had a roommate whose name was also Jeff, though he spelled it incorrectly. And, uh, and so uh, this Jeff and I shared more in common than just a last name uh, and an address as, uh, as roommates. Uh, we also shared a common love of food. 
And, uh, and so whenever we were bored, we would go eat. We would go to one of the all-you-can-eat buffets. Uh, we would uh, go to Casa Ole. Uh, we would go to Mr. Gaddy's, all of these sorts of places we loved. And one day, uh, we uh, uh, were hungry, as we were always hungry, and, uh, and so we decided we needed to, uh, to eat something, but both of us were kind of strapped for cash. And, uh, and so I worked on campus at uh, A&M, and he worked as a driver for Pizza Hut. He would oftentimes bring us home pizza, which was super fun. Uh, but this particular day, he wasn't working, and uh, we didn't have any money, and so we needed to eat. And so instead of going out, we thought, let's just rifle through our uh, cabinets and fridge and see what we have to eat. And so we looked, and we had hamburger meat in the freezer, and so we got the idea, let's just make some nachos. So we look in the pantry, well, there's no chips, and we look in the fridge, there's no cheese. So we decide, okay, let's go to the store, and we'll get chips and cheese and come back and uh, make some hamburger meat, and we'll make some, uh, some nachos. So we go to the store, we get chips, we get cheese, put it in the car, we're kind of walking out, and we decide, you know what, I think we need some jalapenos. So we get some jalapenos, and we start heading out, and then we say, you know what, we really need some salsa. So we go and get some salsa, and then we think, you know, what would really make these great uh, would be if we had uh, some guacamole, and so we get all the ingredients for guacamole, uh, and then we decide, well, you know what, if we have, chick- if we have uh, hamburger meat, we should probably get some chicken as well, so we get chicken, and then we kind of look at our cart, and we say, we have this kind of extravagant nacho supreme going on here, and so probably we should turn in the uh, really cheap cheese that we have and get some exotic cheeses. So we go and do that, and then we turn in the cheap chips and get some. And so I don't know the exact number, but we walked out of there spending over $30 uh, on nachos so that we could save money instead of going out uh, to eat. Uh, but the reason that Jeff and I always had hamburger meat on hand was because his parents uh, owned a slaughterhouse, all right? So don't think like Upton Sinclair novel, 20th century meat packing or something like that. Uh, this was a small little mom-and-pop operation that they had uh, kind of been in their family for the past uh, few generations, and, uh, and so every time that we would go to his home in Victoria, Texas, uh, we would stop by there, and his uh, dad would load us up with like 20 pounds of steak and hamburger meat and sausage and just all of these uh, beautiful pieces of meat, and, uh, and then he would also oftentimes give us an opportunity to do some work for him there in the slaughterhouse. And so he would graciously overpay us. And, uh, and so Jeff would help slaughter a cow or he would help uh, cut some steaks or something like that. I didn't have any of that technical knowledge, so I would just clean. But mostly I'd just act out scenes from Rocky and just kind of hit the frozen carcasses. And that was kind of my job. And, uh, and so uh, we would do that. And, uh, and it was just a, a great blessing to us to be able to get money like that. But all of these years later, I mean, it's been like 19 years or so uh, since uh, I was last there, I can still remember the sights and the sounds and the smells of that slaughterhouse. And in a sense, it's really gross, like if you think about it, just to be around all of these dead carcasses of animals hanging on hooks, uh, to be in there as he actually slaughters a cow. Uh, these, uh, these memories have stuck with me all of these years later. And uh, as gross as this may be, this is actually the image that, uh, that the author of Proverbs 7 is going to use, this image of an ox being led to slaughter. And so it's an image that I want to be kind of burned into our minds as we think of this passage this morning, of the dangers that uh, the author is going to warn us uh, about. And so before we begin, though, I just want to recognize that for some of us in this room, potentially, this is not just a hypothetical future danger. 
for some of us in this room, uh, the conversation on adultery is a very real, a very raw conversation because you have personal experience on either side of the equation. So I just want to say there is grace for you. We're getting to there, and so let me ask you just to listen, to, to hear us out, to let the gospel speak louder than the lies this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll turn our attention to the text. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to consider your word, to have it press upon our own hearts. I pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are not divided this morning, that you would incline our hearts to your testimony, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you might unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We confess that we need you this morning. We confess that you're good and you do good. You're a good father who gives good gifts, so we ask that you would do so uh, this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's look at verses, uh, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We'll begin there. 1 through 5. The author begins, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So this is the last of four warnings that you'll see in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, The first nine chapters, by the way, are intended to be read as a solitary unit. Uh, We saw whenever we were in Proverbs chapter 2 a few weeks ago, we saw that Proverbs 2 is kind of going to to present an outline for the subsequent seven chapters of Proverbs. That's a solitary unit, and different themes come up a number of times, and one of them is this idea of this forbidden woman. So this is now the fourth exhortation, the final exhortation uh, that the author is going to give to his son in regards to uh, this forbidden woman woman. We saw uh, her first in, uh, in chapter 2, and we uh, considered there that this is not just about uh, a woman. This is not kind of the Proverbs uh, woman-hater club or something like that. There's also a very strong warning in, uh, in chapter 2 about the wicked man. And we also see that, uh, that wisdom will be personified as a woman as well. And so there's the forbidden woman, there's the wise woman. And so it's not uh, this sort of uh, anti-woman uh, uh, tirade or something like that that the author is on. So we met her in chapter 2. We encountered her in chapters 5 and 6, although we haven't uh, preached on those. And then this will be the final encounter in, uh, in chapter 7 where we kind of see uh, fully what the danger of consorting with her uh, will, uh, will be. And so we begin with this father that's addressing his son the same sort of uh, way that we saw in chapter 2. The father is addressing his son, and as chapter 2 uh, had said, we see that keeping or treasuring or loving wisdom is going to be the prescription, the prescription to keep us from following after folly and eating the fruit of laziness like we saw last week or the fruit of adultery like this week, or indeed any other uh, sinful uh, pattern and, uh, and vice that we could follow. This passage is applicable uh, to it. And so we saw that wisdom is the prescription for us. If we want to avoid this particular way, we are to walk in another way, and that way is the way of wisdom. To avoid folly, to avoid sin, we must pursue wisdom. We must treasure wisdom. We must love wisdom 
And uh, wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, is found in commandments and teachings. Remember what we saw in Proverbs chapter 2, that wisdom comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wisdom is not something that's innate to us. In fact, Proverbs will say that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Wisdom is something that's extrinsic. It's not intrinsic. It's not something that we're born with. It's something that must be modeled and discipled into us. And so we are to search for wisdom, and wisdom comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so if we were to extrapolate from this, we would say that wisdom is incorporated within the very Word of God, that Scripture is the source of wisdom, that Scripture is the source of knowledge and insight, and thus the means of resisting temptation and folly and sin. This reminds me of one of the first passages I ever learned uh, whenever I first encountered Jesus uh, at the age of 23. I'd grown up in church, but I didn't actually have my affections wakened for Jesus until I was 23. And one of the first passages that I learned at the age of 23 was Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Some of you are familiar with this. It says, how can a man, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word with my whole heart? I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart heart, that I might not sin against you. Again, wisdom, which is found in the very word of the Lord, is the means by which uh, we are to follow after and to to follow after the Lord and, uh, and to prevent ourselves from wandering off into folly. And so in Proverbs, it says that we are to bind wisdom on our fingers to bind it on our fingers, to write it on our hearts. The idea there is as you would tie a string around your finger, maybe you write something on your hand, whatever it might be. Uh, If you put a post-it note on the fridge, if you put it on your calendar or your task list, whatever it is that you do to remember something, the author is saying, do this, remember this. Of all things, remember this. This is the most important thing for you to possibly remember. Get wisdom, knowledge, Go to the Word of God. So I typically, on a typical day, I just use my phone, uh, my iPhone uh, alarm in order to wake up in the morning. At the end of the day, I don't really, it doesn't really matter to me all that much. Most days, whether or not it goes off, I have an internal clock that's going to wake me up around 6 a.m. anyway, and so I typically am not going to miss a meeting if my alarm doesn't go off, but uh, occasionally your iPhone might reset in the middle of the night or something like that, and the alarm doesn't go off. And so if there is something that is particularly important, I will oftentimes set another alarm. I'll set an alarm on a watch or something like that, uh, or I'll have uh, Casey make sure that she sets an alarm as well to kind of double up our chances. The more important something is, the more reminders I set for myself, the more alarms I set for myself. And this text is saying there is nothing more important than this. There's nothing more important than the pursuit of of wisdom as the way to avoid folly and consequent death and punishment and destruction. And so the Father says, this is critical. Don't just set one alarm. Write it on your heart. Tie it to your finger. Set them all. Do anything else that you can to help you remember this because the more important the task, the more imperative it is to remember. And this command is life. And death. So here we'll see the, the beginning of these two speeches. On one hand, you have the speech of the Father, the speech of the Father who is calling His Son toward wisdom, who's calling His Son towards life, who's calling His Son towards hope and joy and all of these good things found in the Word of the Lord. 
On the other hand, you have the speech that's about to begin of this forbidden woman, this slippery speech, as we saw when we looked at uh, Proverbs chapter 2, slippery speech like slippery uh, rocks that are untrustworthy, unstable, and so you slide off into the icy waters below. And so this is the beginning of these two sets of speech, and it kind of mirrors what you would see if we were to continue on through uh, Proverbs 7 into Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8 begins with another form of speech that kind of mirrors the speech of the Father. It's the speech of Lady Wisdom, and she's going to cry this out in Proverbs 8 verses 1 through 4. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gate in front of the town. At the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. So you see there's this mirroring between the speech of the forbidden woman as she's trying to entice this young boy into sin and the voice of Lady Wisdom who's beckoning us toward life and joy. So the adulterous woman and the lady wisdom are both speaking, and their speeches lead down different roads and different directions to different destinations. This reminds me, if you've ever had a couple who maybe were arguing over which, uh, which of them the pet prefers the most, and they're, uh, you know, they're both down on their hands and knees, and they're both shouting, come on, boy, or come on, girl, or whatever it is, until eventually the dog, not because it actually prefers one or the other, it's probably just bored and annoyed that you won't let it alone, it eventually goes to one or the other. So that's the picture here, is that this forbidden woman is crying out, and wisdom is crying out, and they're both crying out loudly in every aspect of life. And so, which one will our heart incline uh, toward? The Father is crying out the voice of wisdom, but so is folly and sin crying out. Let's look in verses 6 through 9. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening at the time of night and darkness. So the father is going to launch into this parable of seeing a group that he describes as simple. That's a word that's used 16 times in the, the book of uh, Proverbs, and it, it, it describes someone who isn't, uh, who isn't necessarily a fool, but also someone who isn't wise. They haven't yet uh, married wisdom. They haven't yet uh, fully committed themselves, covenanted to be a person that's marked by wisdom, and so they are susceptible to folly. They may not necessarily be a fool, but they are opening themselves up. They're vulnerable to folly because they haven't covenanted with wisdom. That's the image of of this simple person. According to Proverbs, you can't just casually date wisdom. That's not the way that it works. You're either fully committed to a life that's marked by wisdom, or you're making yourself, you're opening yourself up, you're making yourself susceptible and vulnerable to folly and to sin. And these men are simple. They're lacking sense and wisdom, but they're old enough to know better. You see, wisdom is like glasses that help us to see truth, to see reality as it actually is. Folly is kind of like your nearsightedness, your innate nearsightedness. And so you need the glasses, you need wisdom in order to see clearly. The simple would be like those who know they should take their glasses, but they don't think they look good in them. So they leave them at home. 
They go driving in the middle of the night without their prescription lenses because they're embarrassed or ashamed or whatever it might be. That's the simple. The simple are the ones who have neglected the means of wisdom, and so they wander off into folly because they refuse to avail themselves of the spectacles of wisdom and knowledge. And so this father tells this parable, and this parable involves him looking down on a group of simple young man, young men, and he sees one particular man among the many, and this man lacks not only sense in general, but he lacks a sense of direction. He might not necessarily know where he is, but he knows that he's not where he should be, and he's going in a direction that he shouldn't. He shouldn't be passing along this street and taking this road. But because he lacks a firm commitment to the right way, again, because he's simple, because he lacks a firm commitment to the right way, he's wandered into the wrong way. And notice the time of day. Notice there in the text it says that this is at the time of night and darkness and twilight. This reminds me of uh, Job twenty four fifteen, which says, The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face, using the darkness as a veil. So this man is not only in the wrong place, but in the wrong time. You've probably heard it preached before, if you've been in church for a long time, the story of David and his uh, adultery that he commits. And, and there's this uh, important point there that the author makes when it says that the, the, the time of season when the kings go out to war, meanwhile, David's not going out to war. David is on his roof back in Jerusalem. In the time when he should be somewhere else, instead he is in the wrong place. That's like this man in the wrong place at the right time, at the wrong time, but culpable because he knew better, or at least he should have known better. So the father is setting the scene in such a way as to demonstrate the kind of the the chain of events that lead to the conclusion. This is not just simply this this boy stumbling into sin. This is a pattern of him setting himself up, walking a road, wandering down the way to folly, ultimately resulting in sin and, uh, and destruction. So the Father sets the scenes to demonstrate all of the foolish decisions that lead to the outcome that is to come. And so imagine, if you will, kind of this imagery of just driving down Harry Hines late at night and not necessarily going into any of the clubs, but driving slow enough, hoping that maybe a door will open and you can see a glimpse of what's in there. That's what this man is doing. He might not have crossed the line yet into sin, but he's walking along a balance beam with his eyes closed. He's risking a fall. You could modernize this however you want. This man is browsing the internet late at night all alone. He starts chatting with an old flame on Facebook. He started visiting the gym at a certain time in order to run into a certain person. He's entertaining a fantasy in his mind or lingering too long on a thought. He's begun to stop by a coworker's office a little too often just to chat. He's asked that coworker out for drinks after work. Whatever it might be, this is the image, walking in a certain direction with a certain outcome. The man is in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's about to encounter the wrong person. Verses 10 through 12, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, 
now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner she lies in wait. So now we meet the villain. She's dressed as a prostitute, although that's probably deceptive, given that uh, it will say later on that her husband has a bag of money. So she's probably this successful businessman's wife, but she is deceptive uh, in her approach. She's wily of heart. She's crafty. She's shrewd. She's cunning. And she's loud and wayward. The way it describes her, she's almost omnipresent, like Johnny Cash. She's been everywhere. She's here, and then she's there, nearly omnipresent, almost taking on these sort of mythical proportions in her characteristics. But then he begins to, I think this is really interesting, he then mixes metaphor. She's everywhere, and yet she's also lying in wait. She's everywhere, and yet at the same time, she's also just lying in one particular position, like sin crouching at the door. She's ready to pounce. She's impulsive, but she's also patient. Again, this sort of mixture of different images of her character and characteristics. She's on the prowl for prey. When I was studying for this, I ran across somebody who had preached a sermon on Proverbs 7, and they used the image of uh, Mufasa teaching Simba how to pounce. If you remember, there's a particular scene in The Lion King where Mufasa teaches uh, his uh, cub how to pounce. I think that's a pretty good image, and it reminded me of uh, a few weeks back, I told a story about being on safari, and I said the first rule of safari is you never get out of the vehicle, and then I said the vehicle broke down, so we had to get out of the vehicle and push it. Later on in that same uh, journey, after we got the the engine working, uh, we were driving along, and we saw this lioness and uh, this lioness was lying uh, pretty close to the little dirt road uh, path that we were following, but crouched down behind uh, a shrub that was maybe half as tall as this pulpit, this little shrub offering a little bit of cover. And about 100 yards in the distance were this, was this herd of antelope. And so she was lying there, crouched down in her little lion uh, crouch, uh, looking off at the antelope. And so we decided, let's just see how close we can get to it. And so we drove, getting closer and closer and closer and closer until literally we were within 10 feet of her. Like she literally could have jumped from her crouch into our vehicle if she would have wanted to. And, uh, and so uh, she looked at us, and she gave this slow, barely perceptible growl and, uh, and then just kind of turned her head. And so we drove by her, and then we decided, let's do it again. So we drove by, and we got... Uh, just as close as we had the other time, and then we drove the other direction, and then we said, let's do it again. So we did it again. We did it like four times, just seeing would she ever move, and we wanted to make sure we got the perfect picture. How often do you see a real lion out in the wild? Maybe you do all the time. I don't. Uh, And so we wanted to get a perfect picture, and so we just continued to do it, and this lion never once moved. Why? Because it was so diligent on the hunt. It knew that if it moves... If it roars, if it gets up, if it does any of those things, it spooks the antelope, and a day's work is over. That's this woman, diligent, dedicated, hungry. She lies in wait until suddenly her prey is in her proximity, and then she pounces. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. 
Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. Let me translate this for you, for those who are less romantically inclined. I've turned down the lights. I've lit some candles. I've put on Barry White or Boys to Men or whatever it is that does it for you. And I've perfumed my bed. I've put the myrrh and the aloes and the cinnamon. I've put out some potpourri. I've sprayed some Febreze on the bed or Chanel Number no. 5 or Diamonds by Liz Taylor or something like that. I've done all of these sorts of things. If she really wanted to get this guy, she should have just spread some bacon on there because that <laughs> is a seductive scent. But this is, this is Israel, so she's a, probably a good Jew, so that's off the table and off the bed. Uh, so some sort of uh, fragrance. Imagine you're living in this particular time period. Some sort of fragrance. Obviously, their hygienic conditions are not what we might expect today. So some sort of fragrance. Uh, Fragrancizing, I don't know a word there. Uh, the bed would be, uh, uh, would have been expected, would have been common, but this is opulent. These particular things are, are extravagant and spicy, right? Pun intended, uh, cinnamon. And, uh, and so that's what this lady is doing here. She has made uh, herself uh, or her, her, her home seem as appealing as possible. Commentators aren't really agreed as to what it means whenever it says, I've paid uh, my, uh, I've made my sacrifices, I've, I've paid my vows. But there's kind of two schools of thought. One is that per- perhaps it's portraying her as this cult prostitute. She's offered a sacrifice, and in certain cult religions, cult prostitutes would, after they offer their sacrifices, they'd have to consummate the act. And so that's one uh, kind of school of thought. The other uh, way of interpreting this would be that she's offered her sacrifices, and thus she has this, uh, this uh, meat that uh, is available to her that she's taken back to her home, and she's basically told the guy, I have all this meat at home. So if the, uh, the candles and the Chanel and all of that doesn't do it for you, maybe a big bag of beef jerky will. It's kind of uh, the idea uh, here that she has offered sacrifices to satisfy her sin, but now she's about to sacrifice this boy to satisfy her insatiable lust. And she spared no expense. That's kind of the idea here. She spared no expense for the luxury of her lust. When I'm thinking of that phrase, spared no expense, I'm reminded of Jurassic Park. You might have remembered uh, the owner there says at one point, spared no expense. And like Jurassic Park, what seems at first like this amusement park of frivolity and pleasure and joy is going to soon turn into this nightmarish experience and this grave. That's the setting, but now the proposition. And she says, we have all night. My husband is gone and won't come back anytime soon. There's nothing to fear. She kind of presents this idea that there's everything to gain. There's nothing at all to lose. She's offering so much, and it seems like she's requiring so little in return. I just want to mention two little things I see here that I think are, are indicative of kind of a general strategy of sin, not just the way that this woman is speaking, but a way that this woman is speaking that I think that we can extrapolate from that and just see the way that sin works in all of our lives uh, at all uh, the time. The first one is notice how this is personalized. 
She says, I've come out to seek you. I've come out to find you. She makes it sound like I wasn't just looking for anyone. I wasn't running all over town just trying to find someone to satisfy my lust. I was looking for you. There's the personalization of sin. You're the one I wanted all along, even though we know she was running all over town hoping to find someone, anyone, that could satisfy her craving. We know, based on what we see in the text, that it's not really about him. It's about her. And yet there's this personalization, I wanted you. I wonder how many of us are caught by that very lie today, especially even as it relates to this particular sin of adultery. The words may be different, but I think the lie is the same. She understands me. He treats me like no one ever has. He listens to me. She says I'm different. Sin is going to appeal as much to our pride as it does to our lust. So that's the first general strategy here that you see in her is this appeal to ego and to pride, the personalization of it. Second, notice the denial of consequence. My husband is gone. There's no danger nothing to worry about. Well, maybe the husband wouldn't come home, but there are worse things, according to the Bible, than being caught by an angry husband. This reminds me of this, uh, another uh, voice, a slippery, serpentine voice that whispers out, surely you will not die. That's the scheme of the enemy, to disconnect the deed from the consequence, or to downplay the consequence, or to deny one consequence and totally ignore another. But the Father knows that knowing the consequence is critical. So that's what he highlights next, as he's already done in the previous chapter. In chapter 6, he said this, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into a neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So maybe the punishment won't come from a husband, but you will be burned, you will be scorched. A scorned husband will not be mocked, and neither will a forsaken God. In verse 21, it says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. I lived in a dorm my first year at, uh, at A&M. That's where I first met, uh, incorrectly spelled Jeff. And uh, he and I, potluck, uh, kind of were joined together as roommates, and we just kind of stayed together throughout uh, the rest of college. But one time, I'm going back into the dorm, and in this common uh, area, uh, there is a Coke machine. So I put my dollar in uh, the Coke machine, and it eats my dollar. And uh, I don't get a Coke, and I don't get my dollar back. And so I do what every reasonable male starts to do. I start shaking it and then punching it and kicking it and all of these sorts of things until all of a sudden I hear this sort of voice from heaven that says, hey, bird brain. Apparently security had seen me on the camera and they had gotten on the intercom and it wasn't God, it was security that was speaking to me and called me bird brain, which was not endearing. It's not a compliment to be called bird brain. And unfortunately, to my embarrassment, it became a nickname for like the, first, uh, the next couple of months or so. Please don't call me bird brain. The idea here, a bird rushes into a snare because he doesn't recognize the danger. An ox blindly goes to the slaughter and doesn't notice the smell of blood in the air. A foolish beast sees no connection between a trap and danger. So the foolish man sees none between sin and death. So this man might not have known 
whenever he goes into the woman's house, he might not have known what he was going to experience there, but he should have. He should have known the consequences. He should have smelled the smell of blood, but instead he smells the blood and he thinks that must be some weird myrrh or aloe or cinnamon. He sees the coffin that's lying there and he thinks that's a crazy looking bed. He should have known better, and yet he doesn't. He ignores it. He hears the chains and the cries of those who have gone before, but his attention is fixed only on his desire. And so the Father says, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Wake up. Look up. Sin is myopic. It's short-sighted. It's infatuated with the present at the expense of the future. This reminds me of a Jerry Seinfeld skit where he talked about the reason he stays up late is because getting up early in the morning, that's future Jerry's problem. doesn't matter. What do I care? I'm nighttime Jerry. And uh, that's kind of what sin's strategy is. What does it matter what the consequence is? Live in the moment, in the present. And in the present, it's marked by pleasure and satisfaction. The flesh is intoxicated by the cares and concerns of today, this very moment. It doesn't notice the shadow and smells of death ahead. The Father says to look further into the future, see and hear and smell and taste the bitterness and the death. This is a strategy for us to think about what it will cost, to think about whatever that sin is, to think about the cost. In regards to adultery in particular, to think about what it will cost you, the physical, emotional, social, professional, relational, and spiritual consequences It's a helpful strategy in the fight against sin to look up and to look forward. Don't shuffle along blindly blindly and ignorantly so impressed by the present. I wonder how many people would really have visited that website or chatted with the former flame or grabbed dinner with that coworker if they knew that it would cost them everything. They knew that it would cost them their job, their marriage, half the bank account, their children's trust and security, friendships, and on and on we could go. We aren't just talking about risking a beating from a husband. We're talking about life and death. Verse 24, and now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So this path is marked kind of as a dead end, and it's populated by all of these cars of those who have gone before. And so uh, the Father is saying, you need to detour. If you follow her, you won't just end up in her bed. You'll end up in a coffin. If you sleep with her, you'll never wake up. It's a grotesque analogy, but uh, it's kind of the image of when the police bust into the house of Jeffrey Dahmer, and there's all of these trophies that he has taken in his path. That's this woman's house. Her house is littered with trophies that she has conquered. So the idea is what makes you think you'll be any different? Is that not the height of pride to see head after head after head mounted there on the walls and to think, yeah, but that won't be me. I know what it cost my buddy, but it won't cost me that. I know what it did to him or to her, But surely I'm different. Is that not the height of pride? Again, pride and lust collide in the darkness of folly and sin. And he says the consequences could not be more grave. This is life and death as all sin is. Wisdom and sanctification are not light 
trivial things. Even in the New Testament, we see this. Romans 8.13, Paul writes, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Death is this major motif of the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its way is death. Only the way of wisdom leads to life. Filtered through the gospel, we could say that there are a number of ways that seem right to man, but only one way is truly the way of life, and that is the way of Christ. Every other way leads to spiritual death and exile from the presence of the King. You know, the way that this woman is described with all of her trophies and her crying out and her beauty, the way that she's described reminds me of the sirens uh, from, uh, from Greek mythology. And so I've used this illustration before uh, in a, a sermon maybe a year ago or something, but most of us uh, weren't here. And so uh, the, the uh, sirens in Greek mythology were these beautiful creatures that kind of have feminine characteristics, but really they're monsters. And their goal is, they live on this island, and their goal is to entice sailors to the island with beautiful singing. They allure them, they entice them with these beautiful songs, and so the sailors uh, will, will, will sail or row or whatever to the island where the sirens will pounce upon them and devour them. And there's at least uh, two people that we know of from, uh, from Greek mythology who uh, were able to resist and to escape from the sirens. The first one is uh, a guy named Odysseus. You might be familiar with him uh, from the Odyssey uh, and the Iliad. And, uh, and so Odysseus, the way that he does it is he hears about the sirens from someone. They kind of describe the danger that he's going to face. And, uh, and so whenever he gets uh, in the general proximity of this island, uh, he has all of his uh, men lash him to the mast. Uh, the whole of the, the ship, and, uh, and then he has all of them take wax and put it in their own ears, but he leaves his ears without any uh, wax in them. And so as they get close to the island, uh, all of a sudden the sirens begin to sing, and he begins to hear their songs, and he begins to thrash about on the mast, just trying to break loose, uh, but he cannot. And he's thrashing violently, violently, violently. And meanwhile, his sailors are just rowing on blissfully unaware because uh, of the wax that they have in their, uh, their ears. And so finally, they row past it, and he settles down, and he kind of comes to his senses again, uh, and they untie him. And that's the way that Odysseus uh, resists the song of the siren. There's another person who resists the song of the siren, and his name is Orpheus. And uh, not Morpheus, like in the Matrix, but Orpheus. And uh, Orpheus used a different strategy. Orpheus didn't tie himself to a mast. Orpheus didn't put wax in the ears of his sailors. Instead, he just told them to row. And they rowed and they rowed and they rowed until finally they heard the sound of the siren singing up ahead. And so the men furiously, violently began to row toward the island and Orpheus just calmly pulls out an instrument, and he begins to play a far sweeter tune. And the men all of a sudden have no interest in going toward the island of the sirens, and they go about their uh, business. Which of these approaches is preferable? Which of these approaches is more biblical for us? The way of Odysseus to lash about violently, to resist sin, 
but to have this sort of longing and insatiable desire for it and just be prevented by circumstance or uh, just sheer force of will to white-knuckle obedience or to be so infatuated with this sweeter song. Now, I'm not saying it has to be one or the other. When it comes to the issue of sin, you're to be a little bit like Jason Bourne, picking up a pen or a newspaper or whatever it might be. Anything in that moment that will help you to survive is worth it, absolutely. But biblically, there is a preference for the way of Orpheus. Biblically, there is this preference to fix your heart, to fix your mind on something that's better than the song of the siren or the song of the adulteress. The author of Proverbs has already encouraged us in that direction. He previously wrote in chapter 5, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. In other words, your spouse should be this sweeter song. If you're intoxicated with a love for your spouse, you have no desire to be seduced by the love of another. That is a sweeter song. The best defense is a strong offense, and as long as your offense is on the field, your defense isn't. And that's not only true in the book of Proverbs, but that's true in the New Testament as well, as the Bible would say, to fix our eyes on Christ, to consider Jesus, to be so filled with a love for Him. That is the sweetest song of all. That's the most compelling prescription. If you want to avoid sin, the most compelling thing that you can do is fall in love with Jesus Christ. That's the compelling, that's the sweeter song that's going to keep you from wandering down the path to folly. So resist the voice of the adulteress by listening to the voice of the Father and resist the words of sin by listening to the voice, the words of God. So this has been kind of a whirlwind sprint through the entire chapter of Proverbs 7. I want to ask the question, what do we do with it? What are the implications and the applications for us thousands of years after this was written? And I want to encourage us in three ways. I want to encourage us to kind of look at the implications of this text, to consider the applications of the text through three dimensions, if you will. The first dimension is literal. There's obviously a straight line that we draw from this text to the issue of sexual immorality. We're to be like Joseph, fleeing from Potiphar's wife's advances. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are to flee sexual immorality. The word flee, by the way, in Greek is fugite. It's where we get the word fugitive. And just like a fugitive, we are to be on the run, constantly aware. What's going to happen to a fugitive if he's playing around the police station all the time? If he's going up to cops all the time and asking them questions, taunting them, playing with them, what's going to happen? He's going to get caught. Likewise, if we're opening ourselves up, if we're making ourselves susceptible to folly and to sin, we're just asking to get caught. But we've been told to flee from adultery, from pornography, from all sexual immorality. And wandering this path typically doesn't just happen by happenstance. Maybe someday I'll tell you about the time I was in Romania and this woman decides that she was going to bathe in front of us. But typically, that's not what happens. Typically, we don't just stumble upon a naked man or woman that suddenly, all of a sudden, overcomes us. Typically, there's this 
slow, long drift away from virtue and obedience, away from a love of Jesus. You're prayerfully, you're not prayerfully reading the Bible, not consistently confessing your sin, especially the small stuff before it becomes big stuff. You're not engaged in deep gospel-centered community with other believers. You're not feeling it at church, not really engaged in worship. You're drifting. You're not diving right into sin, but you're also not paddling against the currents of the world. That would be described as wandering a dark road late at night. So that's the first lens I want us to think through, this real literal one. Are you playing with fire? Is there any area of your life where you're compromising on fidelity and chastity and purity? As we looked uh, at the book of Proverbs and tried to decide what, what ten passages, if we have ten weeks to preach on Proverbs, what ten passages that we would most want to preach? And we tried to kind of uncover some major themes of the book, and sexuality is this huge motif in the book and also just in all wisdom literature. Not only that, it's this huge idol in a culture that is obsessing about sexuality, a culture that worships sex, a culture that's consistently confused on sexuality and gender and constantly obsessed with self-gratification. So, speaking to this reality is important for us, but there's also another dimension that I want us to consider because this passage isn't just applicable for adultery. Yes, it is uh, applicable for adultery, but it isn't just applicable for adultery or sexual sin. So, the second dimension that I want us to consider is this analogical. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor that can be extended beyond this particular application to any application of sin. The adulteress doesn't just represent the danger of adultery or fornication or pornography, but also laziness, like we talked about last week, or pride or deception or any of the other things that we're going to talk about as we walk through Proverbs over the next couple of months. So, in light of this, are there any areas of your life, not just in regards to sexuality, are there any areas of your life where you're not walking in wisdom? Or, in fact, you're maybe walking away from wisdom and walking toward folly if there is any area of your life where you're playing with fire and compromising on wisdom and virtue, then this passage provides fuel as it reminds us of the dangers and also gives us the cure, which is our third dimension that I want us to consider the text through, and that is Christological. There's this Christological lens as we read this. We don't read this uh, in the, the time period that Solomon lives. We, li- we read this through the lens of the fact that we live on the other side of the cross, We've already experienced the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we read this as those who have been uh, gathered into this reality, and we see that Scripture is saying more than just avoid this woman. It's saying more than just avoid the adulterer. I think the Bible in its entirety would say, in some sense, we are this woman. Every one of us in this room, every one of us is, in some sense, this adulteress. And every one of us, in some sense, is the slugger that we considered last week or the wicked man that we considered the week before. We're all spiritual adulterers deserving death and condemnation, but Christ became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, which means we don't have to wallow in shame and guilt and condemnation. We're free and forgiven. And because we're free and forgiven, we're also free to forgive others who have sinned against us. See, some of us, we read this and we, 
resonate maybe with the simple man, kind of maybe find circumstances of our life are leading us down this path where we've been drifting over a long period of time. Others of us resonate more with the adulterer or, or the adulterous woman. Others of us maybe resonate a little bit more with the husband who went about his business and he's being sinned against. Metaphorically, I'm sure in various areas we can all resonate with each character. But the gospel speaks to each of them and each of us and beckons us to love as we've been loved and to forgive as we have been forgiven. How in the world, though, can we forgive such grave and serious sin? The answer is that we remember the gravity of our own sin and the glorious work of Christ to satisfy our sin. To forgive as He forgives is profoundly difficult. In fact, it's impossible apart from this final reality. We began by saying the Father tells the Son, write these words of wisdom on your heart. Bind them on your fingers. But the new covenant is the reality that Christ Himself, who is the wisdom of God, is written on the hearts of His people. So when we orient this passage within the full counsel of Scripture, we see that it isn't just telling us to be wise, it's calling us to embrace Jesus Himself, the very wisdom of God. Sin is crying out to all passerbys, but Jesus is also standing, and He's calling out to all who are weary and heavy laden, and He says, I have offered my sacrifices. I have prepared my home for you. Come, let us eat and drink of love together. And that's what we celebrate in communion, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go to the table together. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You that You or a God who beckons us. You beckon us to walk in wisdom. You beckon us to walk in righteousness. You beckon us to Your Word. You beckon us to Your Son. But You're also a God who forgives us because we have not always walked in righteousness or wisdom or love. And You extend grace to Your people because You're a gracious God. You're a good Father who gives good gifts to your children. So I pray that we might read this passage and we might experience conviction where there needs to be conviction. We might experience hope where there needs to be hope and encouragement where there needs to be encouragement, Lord. But I pray that you'd protect your people from discouragement and shame and condemnation because of your Son. And it's that that we celebrate as we partake of communion together. So would you bless us in Jesus' name? Amen.